Welcome to uh, our class and the book that is called Surrendering to Hope. It's edited by John Mark Hicks, who could not be with us at the moment. Uh, Christine Fox Parker, who is over here, and myself. We do have some in the back over here that uh, Leafwood has brought, and they are $12, right? So I hope that you will avail yourself to these. They are just really small, uh, user-friendly, I think, and uh, I think that you'll be blessed. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and we're going to pray. I don't want to take any time for the speakers. And the way we have this arranged for the next couple of days is those people who have contributed to the book itself are going to share some of their story with you. And I think that you will be truly, truly blessed by this. All of them have gone through the valley of the shadow of death. And they have come out on the other side. And oftentimes they, I would say all of us, still have quite a bit of scarring that probably never goes away. But we have learned that uh, God is is in the shadows, and God is in the valley, and God is even in the very grave itself. He does not leave us, he does not abandon us, and sometimes as hard as it is to find him, sometimes he finds us. And I think one thing that I really just want to stress in all this is that something that I have learned, and I think the rest of these folks will agree with, is that it is okay to ask questions, it is okay to doubt, it's okay to wrestle, and sometimes it is even okay to say that that just isn't fair, and not only is it not fair, it ain't right. And I think we need to be able to wrestle with this stuff, and one of the reasons we brought this book together is because um, I, I'm an academic person most of the time, I like talking about that kind of stuff, but we all live in the real world. And sooner or later, you have to wrestle with life itself. And we have people in our congregations that wrestle with stuff that many times in Churches of Christ or evangelical churches or churches in general just simply never even touch. And people are just dying and waiting for a word that God has not left us. And he does have hope. And that's what this book is all about. Um, going to pray, then I'm going to introduce Rex, and he is back here, and ask God to bless him and Christine. So uh, let's pray, and then Rex will come up after I say a word. Father, we truly are grateful that we can come into your presence. We know, Father, that this world is full of scubula. There's things in this world that just are not the way you intended it to be. And we know, Father, that's why you sent your son Jesus into this world to redeem the darkness, to redeem the pain, to redeem the suffering. And you let Jesus die, and he shared in that. And you raised him from the dead to give us hope that we too will be redeemed, and our lives will be redeemed, and our world will be redeemed. We thank you for that. I ask that you be Rex, Father, empower him through your Holy Spirit to share his story with us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, Rex, who I've known for quite a while, <clears throat> he now serves as the senior minister of the Newark Church of Christ in Delaware, and he is working on a doctor of ministry in contextual theology at Northern Seminary in Illinois. He's married to Laura, and together they have three children, Kenny, Karen and Jared, and he's just an all-around good guy. So, Rex, come on. Thank you. Thanks for being coming out today. I hope you all are uh, enjoying Pepperdine. Have somebody take a picture of you overlooking the, ish, the, the, the ocean. And go back to your churches and say, somebody's got to take one for the team. Right? <laughs> so, uh, um, is, uh, it's an honor... Uh, to have been asked to contribute uh, a chapter uh, to this book, uh, Lost Sons, which 
You can get copies of back there, or not Lost Sons, Surrendering Hope, Guidance for the Broken. I, uh, the chapter I wrote uh, is titled Lost Sons. When I originally drafted the uh, rough draft of the chapter, I titled it uh, Be Still My Soul, taken from the title of that uh, classic hymn we sometimes sing um, in church and worship services. I never sang that hymn growing up, never heard it, and heard it for the first time as a student at Harding School of Theology in Memphis, Tennessee, during chapel. And when I heard it, I just sat there and began to cry. It's kind of embarrassing, but one of my friends asked me if everything was all right, and yes, things were sort of all right. But I was crying because this was the first time that I had ever heard a hymn that so eloquently expressed the grief and pain that I was living with at the time, and yet also expressed the hope that I was clinging to in desperation with what little faith I seemingly had at the time. Uh, the grief and pain that I'm speaking of was due to the unexpected death of my wife and I's first child, Kenny. You can read more in the book about the narrative of what went on. On July 31st, 2002, my wife gave birth to our son. We named him Kenneth James Butts, named after each of his grandfathers. My father is named Kenny, and his, my wife's dad is James or Jim. We were told Kenny was healthy, passed all the tests at the hospital. Uh, my wife had him delivered him cesarean birth, so she stayed in the hospital a couple extra days. So they allowed Kenny to stay with her. But on August 2nd, we were able to take Kenny home. Um, got home, I immediately sat him down in front of the television, turned on the Cubs game so that I could begin indoctrinating him to the right team. <laughs> Important things in raising children. Uh, not long after that, he had more important things. He was hungry and needed to be fed. So his mother took him back. Uh, it wasn't too long after that that my mother-in-law came running out with Kenny and said he wasn't breathing. An hour or so later, in the emergency room, the doctor came in to see us and with eight simple but to-the-point words, I'm sorry, but we've pronounced your son dead. Um, those of you who are parents here, you, you, you know, when you, when you hold your child for the first time, there, there just isn't words in the English language to describe the, that experience adequately. But if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. Likewise, there's just no words to describe the experience of being handed the body of your son and being told he's dead. There I begged God for a miracle. I said, you, you raised Lazarus from the dead. Would you please raise our son back to life? This cannot be happening. But it did. So I want to talk to you for the next few minutes about this suffering that I was plunged into. Now, if you do buy a copy of this book, um, the chapter, like I said, will give you a more uh, bigger narrative on losing my faith and finding it again. Um, a faith that now is renewed by hope in Christ. But for me, the, this struggle stemmed from my understanding of God at the time and how I thought of prayer. Um, you see, for nine months, my wife and I prayed faithfully. For a healthy child. And it wasn't a selfish prayer. Let our child grow up to be um, the next Clayton Kershaw. You know, or Chris Bryant or whoever. We simply prayed that God would give us a healthy child who would grow up to serve him. And I've been taught vicariously in church that when you pray, God heals. Because we always prayed for God to heal. We always talked about the times that God did heal. We never talked about the times 
when God didn't heal. We never pray that, God, you would give us the faith to endure should you let Sister Helen pass away. Or if you'd let when, you know, Brother Doyle doesn't come off the operating table. Do we pray that our child would be healthy and grow up and serve God? And when our son was rushed to the emergency rooms, many of our friends and family from our church also showed up to pray that God would heal Kenny. And yet Kenny died. Now I initially leaned into my faith. God the Father raised his son Jesus. And we know that, you know, death is not the last word. God's going to raise my son too. But slowly, my faith began to crack. Part of that had to do with my own feelings as a failure, as a parent. You see, as a parent, we are supposed to protect our children. And when my son needed me the most, I wasn't able to help him. And I just felt like a big failure. And I can remember driving around Searcy in the country thinking that my son is lost and i got to find him. And I'd drive around for an hour. And, and I know rationally that doesn't make sense. And eventually, rationally, I would come back to my mind and realize I can't find him. And then I would just stop in the car and just cry and cry and cry. Why did my son die? And then there was another child that had been born nearly the same time our son was born. He was born critically ill at birth, uh, which you can imagine is also devastating news for this child's parents. And people prayed for this child too. And I'm thrilled to say that this child today is a healthy, living 16-year-old boy. I'm so happy the child lived. But then I heard other Christians talking about how God hears the prayers. God heard our prayers for this child. And so God healed. And I remember looking at my wife one Sunday. He was looking at her, saying, why didn't he hear our prayers? Why didn't he heal our son? If my faith was a pane of glass, that was the moment it fell on the floor and shattered into a thousand pieces. I stopped praying because I no longer was sure. Uh, it seemed that if it seemed that God did hear our prayers for Kenny, then he either didn't care or just was unable to heal our son. Now, I know 16 years later that this is a very small box to have God in. And that box at the time was no longer big enough to contain God. But nothing made sense anymore, so I stopped praying because it didn't seem like prayer mattered anymore. People get sick, and they're either going to get well or they're going to die. But God has nothing to do with it. Now, that's a very deistic view of God. It's a false view of God. Um, let me clarify that for the recording. But this is where I was in the journey. And this unfairness continued piling on a year later when my younger brother, John, uh, unexpectedly passed away and left behind a wife and two children. You can read more about that. But for me, that was the final straw. I, I told my wife, I said, I'm done. I go out, finish the semester out. I'm done. I'm not going to be a minister. I'm not going to finish this theology degree. I don't want anything more to do with this. I'm done. Or so I thought. But thankfully, God wasn't done with me. And if you're, if you're in this journey, you've ever been in this journey, it's one thing I remind you. That just when we think we're done, that's when God is there in the mystery of it all. Saying, but I'm not done with you. Uh, I met John Mark Hicks. He, the, the, the theme for that year, Harding School of Theology, was spiritual transformation. I didn't know him, but he was speaking on his own spiritual journey. Uh, and if, 
if you know him, uh, you know he's lost a wife, married a second time. They had a son that was born with a debilitating illness, that, and his son eventually died, and then he went through a divorce. And here he was speaking about how God is at work and in and, and prayer and everything. And you know, I'm just I'm scratching my head at you know if, huh, huh, how can this be? I mean, look what's happened to him. And I went up to him after he was done speaking with one question. I said, how do you learn to pray? And I told him what had happened. I said, I haven't prayed for a year. I'm just not sure it matters. I'm just not sure what to believe anymore. And so he quoted to me, oops, he quoted to me Romans 8, 28. Now, if you've ever been through the ringer in some way, <laughs> loss of a child, divorce, um, abuse, whatever, there are certain cliche sayings that sufferers just hate, and Romans 8.28 has become one of those. Because people want to quote it as though it's like a Band-Aid, and they can put that over a shotgun wound and expect it to heal. That's not going to happen. And I can just tell you it feels really dismissive. And at the time, I almost wanted to punch him in the mouth. <laughs> you know, it, but he could see. I wouldn't do that. But, you know, desire, I'll confess, the desire was there. But he could see me getting angry. And he, he, he stopped. He, he said, please, I know you've heard this thrown out as some cliche. And he goes, I'm not throwing it out there. It's just a cheap proof text. And so I gave him the benefit of the doubt because he, all, he at least knows what I'm going through. And he asked me, he said, he gave me his email, his cell phone number. He asked me if I would go home and reread Romans and see why Paul comes to this conclusion. So that was the night I went home and I kept reading Romans. I must have read it about 15 times. And I, I've never heard God audibly speak to me. I wish he would because I've got a lot of questions to ask him. But God spoke. He said, don't you get it, Rex? My good for you is your redemption, your transformation into Christ. And if you will hang on and not give up, I will get that done. You won't understand everything about how I'm going to go about this. But if you'll trust me and not give up, I'll get it done. <clears throat> and so that was uh, the proverbial thousand-pound gorilla, so to speak, being lifted off my shoulders. Um, I realized at the time what I wanted. I wanted to know why my son died. I wanted to know why one child will leave the pediatric oncology award alive and another child will not. But at that moment, I no longer needed to know how God works in every facet. Why things like this happen, why there's a holocaust, there's an earthquake in Haiti, one of the poorest countries in the world. And I was able to trust God again. Even though there's things I don't understand about God, and still don't. I was able to trust God again, even though I couldn't understand all the ways in which God is still at work. And so I want to wrap up this talk with a word about those who suffer. Maybe that's you. And the hope that there is in Christ. You know, I wish I knew why some children die, but I don't. I don't know why deadly earthquakes and tornadoes strike. And I probably, I really don't understand why suffering happens to any one of us. I wish I did. I'm a pastor, which supposedly means that some people think I should know why. And I don't. I have a guy, in my, a young kid at my church, and he keeps asking me, why does God let children die? I don't know. Um, 
So I've decided that I'm done trying to explain human suffering. That's not my calling. And I've also learned that God is big enough that he doesn't need me to defend him. Instead, I just want to be present with those who are suffering and say I'm sorry. Be there to listen, cry with them, pray with them, serve them however they need. After our son died, one of the fears that my wife and I had was that Kenny would just be forgotten. After all, he lived only three days, a very short life. We were so fearful that once we started having other children, that he'd just be forgotten. And it, that just seemed so cruel, as though his life meant nothing. In 2005, my wife was pregnant with our daughter, Soon be our, it was our daughter, we didn't know yet, just yet, but we found out we were having a girl, and on January 1st of 2000, or 2004, she was pregnant, because January 1st of 2005, our daughter Karen was born. One of the many acts of burden bearing, all right, Galatians 2, 6, 2 says that the law of Christ is to what? Bear the burdens of each other. One of the many acts of burden-bearing that I remember was when Christine Parker gave my wife and I a picture frame with the baby pictures of Kenny and Karen together. Not only did this act of kindness remind us that Kenny is not forgotten, it was also the unspoken voice of God reminding us that he's still caring for Kenny, that he's still caring for us, that he's still at work in this world, and that this kind act was a reminder that God is with us in our suffering so that we can wait with hope for the day when suffering is no more. And that's what I have this hope that we have in Christ, that regardless of what brings us grief or pain, our God has saved us. If you read Romans 8, how much time do I have? Got a few more minutes. All right. If you read Romans 8, 1, you know, after Paul's, I do the things I don't want to do and the things I want to do, I don't do what a wretched man am I, who's going to rescue me? Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation in Christ. And Romans 8 ends with Paul declaring we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I, several years ago at a church I was serving at, we had a Christian lady there. Her one big struggle was heroin addiction. And she'd go for six, seven months clean and then disappear. And I know that this is probably what's going to kill her in life. She called me up, asked me if I could come get her. She's at a flop house in part of Baltimore you don't want to walk around in. And all I could tell her was don't give up. Don't give up because God won't give up on you. Don't give up. If you're going through the loss of someone you love, divorce, addiction, or some other suffering, our God has saved us, and he will bring that assurance of salvation to completeness if we'll keep trusting him. That's our faith, and that's our hope. So may the Lord bless us all. Thank you. see I think there's some rich material in our book and I hope that you will get it and Rex thank you for sharing your heart with us and um, I think one thing that we can take away from this too is that even sometimes when we do so well as Christians sometimes you can even use the word of God as a can become a weapon of the evil one 
and even a wonderful passage like Romans 8.28 needs a context. <clears throat> and um, I, I like thinking that God is crying with us in our pain and our suffering. So Christine, whom I have known for a while, and a wonderful person, and uh, she has blessed us all in many, many, many different ways. So she is a mother to Noah and Aaron, and she adores her daughter-in-law, Molly. And my and boys. I, I adore my boys, too. <laughs> <laughs> and she likes listening to Billy Joel as she's going on long car trips. Yes, that was not in there, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> she's got two degrees from Harding School of Theology. Christine laughs, as you just heard her. And loves hard. She sorrows and laments in its turn. She is known completely by God and seeks to know all whom God sends across her path. And, you know, she is a blessing to us. And I think most of us who have worked on this book together, um, she has blessed us all. Any uh, authors in here uh, agree with that? So. She has, and I'm grateful that she's going to share with us. And um, Christine, uh, come and share. All right. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you. Well, <clears throat> thank you, Rex. Surprise there at the end. I had forgotten about that. I had not, however, forgotten her story. I remember. Um, I remember getting the news about um, Kenny. Um, they had not moved to Memphis yet. Um, I remember when Rex started at the graduate school a month later, and I remember a year later, um, hey, <laughs> Uh, I remember when I met Laura. I remember sitting in a group of women with her. A group of women had little kids, some were pregnant. I remember that, the tears in her eyes. And I remember when Karen was born. It was a beautiful time. Um, I started teaching 30 years ago, teaching people about God. I'm 47. I was 17. For those of you who are from California, um, I, my, I taught my first Bible class <laughs> at Yosemite Family Encampment. That's insane. Yeah. Good to see you. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Um, um, I was 17, and I was asked to teach the girls' class. The teenage girl class I just graduated from high school. That's stupid, insane. That doesn't happen. I wasn't from a church family. My family did not go to church. I went by myself through high school. How does that happen? I, God does that. And in the 30 years since then, I have never, ever walked into a room not knowing how to do what I had been asked to do, ever. Not because I'm so all that, I am, but that's not why. Because God has always had me ready. Now, we have a process, my God and I. We always like this, okay? So I write down all the things that I want to say, and then he says, no, this instead. Ooh, I'm shaking. I have a tremor. My tremor is really bad today because I, I, it gets worse when I get energy, which I have because I love to do this. Um, and he says, no, this, and then no to that, and all of this stuff. But by the end of time, which is not now, but by the end of my time, when I walk into the room, he says, go. And the Holy Spirit comes out. But not this time. This time has been weird. This time it's like, I, I, I have no idea how to tell you what I need to tell you today, because I can't tell you what I need to tell you today, which has never happened. Because I don't get to tell you my story. I don't get to tell you what happened in my life that took away my present, 
decimated my future. And unlike most other tragedies, I want to say death disassembled, but that's not a big enough word. I, don't, I haven't found the word yet for what it did to my past. It happened four years ago, but it had been happening for 20 plus years at that point, and I never knew it. And I cannot tell you what it is because the person who did it doesn't want it known. And the law and legal precedent agree that if I tell you, I can be sued. And so can the co-editors of the book, and so can my, um, our publisher. So I don't know how to tell you about healing from that, because I can't, my narrative is not my own. So Bobby's been asking me, are you ready for today? And I said, we'll find out when I get there. <laughs> and uh, others have been saying, so you ready for next week? And I'm like, eh? So here I am, we have a book, we have a wonderful, beautiful book that God put together for us. When we, we first started talking about it, um, February 2017, John Mark messaged us by Facebook, me and Bobby and I think Les Ferguson and a couple of others, one Sunday afternoon, he said, what do you think about this idea? And I mean, like, the messages were blasting all day long. and. Um, just back and forth and finally at the end of the day we were like okay we gotta all go to work tomorrow we need to get some sleep I'm on the Eastern um, Standard Time at that point and uh, it oh, but we had a solid idea like, okay we are gonna we are gonna tell God's story this is what we're gonna do we there are many 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 fine books out there that tell about suffering in this world that talk about it from a Christian perspective that tell you you know, read this book, do this, do that, pray, read these scriptures, go to the Psalms, lament. They're fine books, and some of them are actually listed in the back of, of, of Surrendering to Hope um, because they're very, very helpful. But we wanted to tell the story of God. We wanted to tell the story of how God enters suffering and how God heals we didn't want to tell our stories. We didn't want the authors to tell their stories. We wanted to tell God's story. And yeah, we'd have to tell some details. We'd have to tell what happened to us and all that stuff. And there are amazing stories about amazing people, but we didn't want to tell those stories. We wanted to tell God. We wanted to talk about God. So we knew we'd have to find specific people who could do just that, who could be transparent enough to tell the truth about God. And to tell the truth about God, I don't know if y'all have ever read the Bible, but if you tell the truth about God, you got to tell the truth about yourself. you got to get down and dirty and say, when this happened, I cussed. The year that, the first year after I found out what I found out, I said the F bomb more times than most people have ever said it in their lives. And I still say it sometimes. I can't tell you why. Um, <laughs> there, I mean, and that's just like the tip of the tip of the scratch of the tip of the iceberg of what happened in my suffering and in the suffering of others. When we, I mean, oh my gosh, I hate it. I didn't know I could hate people. I've never hated before. I've been mad because I've been hurt. This was not the first time. I, um, my earliest memory, one of my earliest memories, was um, loving God. I loved God. I loved Jesus. I was watching, um, I don't even know what, I don't remember anything except for seeing this woman on TV. I was like four. And you wouldn't even know see me up here. You bar barely see me now. But I was like four, and there was this woman on TV, and she was talking about Jesus. I hope this is making sense to you because this is it's coming out. Um, so I was like four, and I'm watching this TV on this woman on TV, not the TV on the woman that was bad. <laughs> and so I'm watching this woman on TV. She's got this beehive hairdo and polyester suit on, and she's talking about Jesus. 
she's saying, And you can love Jesus too. And if you love Jesus enough, you tell him to come live in your heart and he will love you forever. So I walked over and I remember it clear as day. I don't remember walking over there, but I remember standing at this gigantic um, sliding glass door that we had and the sky was blue. I don't remember if there were clouds, but I remember the color of the blue. It's kind of like that maybe, I don't know. Well, I just said I remember it, didn't I? It's not like that. Um, anyhow, so I'm looking out at the blue, and I just, just invited Jesus into my heart, and he came, and I've loved him ever since. Loved him hard. I was baptized at Bible camp when I was 12, don't worry. Um, <laughs> I have loved him so much. I didn't know what I said, but I did. In my sorrow, in my sick sadness. I did not know that I could come to this place without knowing who God is. And that was before this happened. I don't know what that is, but I knocked it down, so I'll pick it up. Um, a couple of months before I found out what I found out that I can't tell you about, and I won't. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, was, I was worn out. I was done with God. I told him, look, you've been silent enough. I have been loving you, and you have been an unrequited lover, and I am done with you. You know, I loved you my whole life. I have been faithful to you, and you took my childhood family through alcohol and divorce, and you took two of my babies through miscarriage, and you, um, oh, I don't even remember what, oh, <laughs> let's not even begin talking about all the chronic pain, and nobody can tell me why and fix it. I'm done. I will behave just like always. I will continue to go to church and smile and sing and because why? Why should this affect my family? Why should they suffer? But I'm done. No more praying. No more begging. No more. He can be silent. I can be silent. And I got up off the floor that Sunday morning, got dressed, went to church and sang and smiled and prayed. Well, bowed my head. And then I realized a couple of days later that in this silence that was now golden, you actually can't be neutral about God. You can say no to God, but every no has a necessary yes. If you say no to God, then you are saying yes to evil. You don't get to just say no. There is a yes that is implicit and also explicit, whether you realize it or not. It's just kind of Oxymoron, but huh, I'm kind of a moron, so that's okay. So um, I tried to do that. I tried to I tried to do the neutral. I tried to say to deny that there was this necessary yes if I was going to say no to God, and it didn't work. And it was like I was staring into this kind of gray crevice of my life and kind of looking down the road of life and. It, and it was all gray. It was not. It was not just this. Okay, I'm just going to go along and bow my head and sing and smile, and it would be okay. It was no, no. I mean, I could do that, but it would be very gray and very, you know. And I was assenting to participating passively, albeit in evil. I mean, I wasn't going to go up carousing and you know all that stuff that evil people do. But I would be assenting to all of that. So this little four-year-old girl inside of me that loved her God more than anything felt really loud, really loud, and really demanding, and greedily screamed inside my head, don't do this. You can't do this. You love God too much. And the war-torn, weary, 40-something-year-old just put her hands over her ears. And, but unfortunately, that just makes the noise inside the head louder. So. Anyway, she went out. <clears throat> there was no miraculous healing or Jovian ending, but there was something. There was something. When I realized that I could not say the necessary yes to evil, that I said yes back to God, I realized 
that in the darkest moments, in just as in the lightest moments, in the brightest moments, there was always something. There was an abiding. In the silence, there was a sound. An abiding, bright noise. And it was God. God is hard to hear and hard to see in the darkness, in the silent, seeming silent darkness. And it's easy to forget him. It's easy to forget God when we can't see him on the side of Eden. I've had my Edens. I've had plenty of them. We've all had our Edens. Um, times when we walk and talk and things are good and we can hear him really well and draws us in close and warms us and transforms us. And life was good. I had my two sons. They were amazing. They are amazing. I had what I thought was a really happy marriage. I had a ministry and degrees and fine school. <clears throat> but humanity walked out of Eden. And when humanity walked out of Eden, it got hard to hear and to see God. We've all done it. Sometimes Eden ends, Eden dies because of the sin of others wreaked upon us. Sometimes we walk out of Eden on our own. Most of us do a little of both. I have. And it's dark on the side of Eden. Okay. What that little girl, that little four-year-old who kept saying, you can't, you can't do this. You cannot say yes to evil. What she knew was that I was crying the cry of humanity. Why? Why did you make me if you were just going to bring me to this level of suffering? Why did you put this tree in the garden and then tell us not to eat it? Why did you make us such a great nation and then send us to exile? Why did you go silent, God, for 400 years? Why did you come join us after 400 years and then die on a cross and leave us hanging on a cross in our darkest moments? Why? the thing we get to ask that question we have to ask that question and what and how much longer we have to ask those are the questions of lament and we have to ask them because if we don't ask them we don't get answers and even sometimes most of the time probably we don't even get the answers but we get the answerer and what I learned what I realized <laughs> is I got the answerer I didn't get him I didn't get God God was always there. God was there in my darkest moments when I was four, before I was four, when I was 10, when I was 11 and my dad left, when I was 15, when I was 17, when I was 27 and 37, and now today when I'm 47. At every moment, in every shadow, and in every brightness, in Eden, out of Eden, God has been there, healing. Okay, so wait, before I get to the best part, I almost forgot this part. So why does it matter that I can't tell you? It doesn't matter that I can't tell you what happened. It matters that I can't tell people like me, and they can't tell me. Because here's the thing. You ever meet somebody who just like, they're talking and you're like, wow, this, this person gets me. I mean, I can't, I don't, I gotta meet this person because this, they know me. I mean, this is like, wow. So Saturday morning, um, I, I, I had driven Friday night from, I, I live in West Virginia right now, okay? I'm like all over the map right now, literally. Um, so I drove from West Virginia to Nashville, stayed the night in Nashville, and Saturday morning, um, unplanned, went with John Mark and Jennifer Hicks to a lecture, Kurt Thompson. Kurt Thompson is a famous psychiatrist who does 
who does what I do, only so much better. And like he is like a trainer, and I'm like in awe, and I'm listening to him, and he goes, my mind, well, he says to, he says to the audience, and I'm like, this guy's going to be my best friend by the end of the day. He doesn't know it yet, but we are going to get there. And he goes, your mind is not your own. And I'm like, okay, tell me something I don't know, Kurt. Come on, I know my mind is not my own. But he goes, then he goes, and my mind, talking about myself, my mind is not my own. And we all know psychiatrists are a little bit kooky. So, okay, so our minds are not our own. He's a neurobiologist. Um, and, and we do healing. Okay, so we're talking about how healing happens. Okay, so our minds, our brains are our own. You get to own your brains. Okay, you get to keep those. But your, our minds do not happen until they get out of our heads into the space between us, mm -hmm. and we respond. Bra our minds are relational. They're interactional, energetic processes. And I'm like, oh my gosh, where were you when I was telling my voice for 20 years? Uh, nothing, if, you, if it doesn't get out of here, into the space between here, I can't know about it. Okay, so he's like validated my whole life. But, um, but also, because of that dynamic, because our minds are relational, healing needs community, shared experience. So much of what happens to us happens, there's so much involved that is pre-verbal that you can't articulate with words. And when tragedy strikes, or joy for that matter, we can't, we can't put words to what that feels, feel, what happened. So when I say, yeah, my marriage ended, but what happened because of what caused the end of my marriage wiped out everything I ever thought, most people can't understand that. Because, you know, most people can look back and go, oh, well, we had good times. Yeah, there was good stuff. Well, I can't do that, and I can't tell you why, and that's okay. But I can't even find people like that because we're not allowed to find each other because we can't talk about it. So if our minds are relational, how do I heal? How do I find healing when I can't find shared community? When I can't find, there are no resources for people who've been what I, through what I've been through. There are, I look high and low. I, I look for books, I call ministers, I, I know a lot of them across the country. I spent 15 years at Harding School of Theology. Ministers came and went and there's nothing out there. There's still, four years later, I looked again, nothing, nothing. I talked to some folks this morning who are good friends. They, I know, I know people are doing this, are going through what I'm going through because they know people. And they said, we've looked for resources, Christine, and I think you might be the only one. I'm like, okay, well, so, because I can talk about this privately, but I can't. So we can't find each other. So how do you heal? And people for years have said, what did you do, Christine? How did you do this? How did you heal? And I say, every time, I did nothing. I did not heal. I didn't do it. And they, they insist. They said, well, you must have done something because look at you. And I'm like, yeah, look at me. I'm a mess. And, I, and they said, no, 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 but you are, you're good, you're strong, you're well. And I said, but I didn't do it. I never did anything. God did it. I didn't do it. I cried. And I raged. And I hated. And I argued with God. And I yelled at him. And I cooked at him. And he stilled me. And he heard me. And he loved me. did it without a shared community. And so while famous psychiatrists are absolutely right that shared experience and are sharing neurons with people who suffer the way we suffer, and the Bible even says we comfort others the way you have been comforted, that is necessary to healing unless it's not possible. And I'm not the only one. People like me are not the only ones. There are a lot of people in this world who suffer in isolation, they sit on the, there are people in this room. <laughs> and God heals in the darkest 
completest isolation because he is God. God healed me. And when we wrote this book, when I wrote my first chapter, which I did not publish, <laughs> I learned, I, I found the language to articulate what God did, how God healed me. He surrendered me. I didn't do anything except for cry and sorrow and rage and hate and be stilled by a God who continually held me no matter what in every moment and had been holding me since the day I was born in every moment that I thought he was silent and absent. And he has been doing that since the day of creation from Eden to Israel to the cross to the throne and he will do it until Jesus comes again and we are resurrected and he will continue to do it for eternity. That, my friends, is the reason I can look anyone in the eye and say no matter what, God can heal. No, <laughs> not God can heal, God heals. God heals in community, in isolation, in darkness and in light, God is our healer. There are so many stories in here that are beautiful stories of God. You may find a story in here that is similar to yours. You may not. But you will find God in this book. It is God's book. That is what we set out to write. And our beautiful contributors, several of whom are here, they did what God called us to do. They wrote God's story in their stories. You will find your story in here because God's story is in here. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this tremendous honor to tell your story, to speak your truth into, into your kingdom. I lift all of this up to you for your glory. And I thank you for everything you've done. I don't even have the words, but I am so grateful for every person here and for those who have made this possible in my life. I love you so much. Thank you for turning my tears into tears of love.